one. Hello and welcome back everyone to the Answers That Count podcast. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove, and thank you so much for joining us for another exciting show. I am really pumped up about this show. We have a returning guest to the show, Dr. Melissa Hughes is back today. But before we get started, I want to ask you to do one thing. Hit the subscribe button, also hit the like button and the uh, notification bell so that you'll be notified when we post new videos to our podcast. So welcome back. Dr. Melissa Hughes, this is this is great. This is uh, neuroscience geek extraordinary, Dr. Melissa Hughes. Thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be so cool. And uh, you know, I was at a at a Florida Restaurant Lodging Association conference recently, and you were a, a double speaker there. You had two sessions, and I know both of those sessions were well attended. And not only were they well attended, the feedback you're getting on on one of those sessions, from what I hear, has just been remarkable. So a lot of interest. Uh, you know how to deliver a great message, and people are always interested in learning about how the brain works, and we're going to have another great conversation today about it. I, it is so good to be here. It was great to see you at FRLA. It's one of my favorite events of the year. Um, and you're right, that session was amazing. First of all, it was packed and um every i believe most of us really want to know how the brain works and how to make it work better not everybody likes to dig into the research the way i do because i'm a little bit geeky that way and i admittedly i own that but i think a lot most of us want to know what we can do to make this three pound squishy mass between our ears we do it i mean it is it is just so cool to, to hear this and when you hear when you hear some of your your tips and tricks and your brain hacks, it, it just, you think, wow, that, I get it. That makes sense. I, now I understand why I think like I think. So uh, I also want to give you a, sh- give a shout out. You were on uh, TED Talks recently too, and I think you said that was back in April, and you're getting uh, a lot of good mentions on that. That's uh, getting a lot of good kickbacks around the, the internet. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I was um, fortunate to be selected to deliver a TED Talk, and it is all about imposter syndrome. So if you're interested at all in imposter syndrome, and I'll just give you a little hint, it is uh, common among more than 70% of us. Wow. A lot of people suffer from it and don't even know it. So we have it and we don't know it. And also to give give a special shout out to... uh, the the last book that you wrote it's uh happier with einstein happy happier hour happier hour with einstein so and that's the second book you wrote happy hour with einstein and now you've written happier hour with einstein that's correct yep and it is um a lot of what we're talking about today it's just that neuroscience research uh dr- distilled down into little nuggets that you can actually use i love the brain nuggets and one of the great delivery uh, mechanisms or tools that you use are the sketch notes. Now, I don't know if you came up with that, but that, that those things are so cool. So let's we've got a sketch note for our presentation today, and I think people are going to love this. This just is like so much information on there, and it, it's uh, it's just it, you just ask the questions. Why do we like what we like? I think that's a good one to start with. That is a good one to start with. And I, let me just add about the sketch notes. There's actually brain science in the sketch notes. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. 
So the idea behind when I do my speaking engagements, when I do my presentations, I don't do them in the typical PowerPoint format. I use a different presentation, which I think is much more engaging. That's the upside. The downside is I don't have a deck to give people. And so I started to develop these sketch notes. And the goal is to on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and visual representation of all of the content that I'm delivering. And the neuroscience is that we uh, are able to comprehend, make sense of, and connect to prior knowledge, a, vis a visual representation of information much faster than we can text. And so why, we like, why do we like what we like? And you see in the sketch notes, there's a little, um, there are some Chinese characters. And one of the reasons that uh, we like what we like is because something is familiar to us. So this actually contributes to the, what we call the exposure effect. And it turns out that this particular uh, preference for what is familiar happens completely outside our awareness. There was a classic study done in which researchers showed English speaking participants who did not know Chinese, a range of Chinese characters. And they were just instructed to look at them and pay attention. Later, he showed the participants another set of characters. Some of those Chinese characters were repeated from the first set. Some of them were not. But then he asked them to guess what they meant. Now, if I asked you, Charles, to guess what those Chinese characters mean, it's just kind of random, right? right? You have right. no idea. But there's, I mean, there's, there's no way that you can actually figure it out unless right. you know it, Chinese, right? Right. What was interesting is they threw out words like, house, soccer, family, love, whatever, right? The interesting part was that the guesses were not random at all. If the people had seen those characters in the previous set, even just if they were flashed on the screen, just briefly, they were much more likely to assume that character represented something positive, hmm. like love or family or friend or you know so it was all based on what they had seen before being familiar with it that's right all based on that they had seen it before if they had not seen that character they were they were either negative or neutral hmm. you, you know so it, it it they also rated themselves to be happier after viewing the ones that they had seen before so we gravitate toward things that are familiar it's that's interesting. So how do you, how does that relate to if we're talking in a business environment or a retail environment, how does that help influence decision making or buying buying decisions? The more we see something, the more familiar something is to us, the more likely that we are to make that purchase. Um they've done they've done studies in restaurants where they feature a dish uh, special of the day on a blackboard before you come into the door. Hmm. Maybe there's another specials board while you're waiting to be seated. Maybe there's a table tent specials, uh, um, right thing on the table. And then it's also in the menu. There's a reason why all 
four of those things, they're, they're all making waves in your brain. So when it comes time to order, there are many more people order that just simply because they've seen it over and over and over again. And that short period of time, but between when you get out of your car and when you place your order at the table, you've seen it four times. It's already familiar. Interesting. Is that also why you hear people, they'll do brand marketing or they're, they ha they're branding their whatever their services or their goods or their business, they're branding that so people become more familiar with what that branding is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very interesting. So what is the, uh, the, the, there's a numbers are sticky since I'm a, a CPA, I, I saw the numbers thing. So what numbers are sticky? How does that, what's the brain hack for that? So numbers are very sticky. First, our, our, there's a thing called the anchor effect. And um, we set anchors that actually influence decisions that, that come next. But the brain is incredibly receptive to numerical anchors. There's a guy named Dan Ariely. He wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. And he wrote several books and he has, I don't know, 10 TED Talks or something, he's amazing. Um, but he did a, a study uh, where he held an auction and he asked, he had a, a range of items that he was auctioning off. He did this at MIT. He did that, he replicated this numerous times with different audiences. So it happened over and over and over again. But he had numerous items that he was auctioning off, perhaps a bottle of wine. And he'd hold the wine up and he'd tell the audience about the wine and what it was. And before he started the auction, he said, now, before we start bidding on these items, I'd like you to write down the last two numbers of your social security number. That has nothing to do with wine or any of the other items in the auction. So the participants wrote the last two numbers of their social security number down. And then he had them bid. And what he found was the bid price was higher for the people who had higher numbers. that were the last two numbers of their social security number. Interesting. The average price was around $37 for people who had uh, the last two numbers of their social was um, 80 to 99. And for those people who the last two numbers of their SOS was zero to 20, the average price was somewhere around $13. Hmm, interesting. It has nothing to do with the wine, but n numbers are really sticky in the brain. I'll give you an, another example of um, the anchor effect and numbers. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you were told that the wait time was going to be about 30 minutes? Mm -hmm. Yes. And if it's a restaurant that you really want to go to and you're not in a hurry and it's worth the wait because you've been there before and it's yummy and you just, you, you, you've been jonesing for this restaurant all day long, right? If you're seated before the 30 minutes, what happens? You're happy. You're thrilled. Right. Promise. <laughs> Even if it's 20 minutes, like a 20 minute wait, what? All right. I just won the lottery. Yeah. But if you're seated 10 minutes past the 30 minute wait time. Now what? You're upset. Now you're pissed, right? Yeah. So it is that um, the difference is not in the actual waiting time. The difference is not the wait time at all. The difference in, is the anchor that was set that actually determines what your expectations are for that experience. Setting so. the expectations around that number, the anchor. 
Absolutely. Interesting. So let's look at the, we talked about why do I like what I like? The numbers are sticky. Now you talked, you just touched on the, the anchor effect also. Is there anything else on the anchor effect? Brains are like boat anchors. Well, we're always looking for that for that starting point. So in the business world, this is really important because um, I want you to think about a time where you bring the whole team around the table and you're brainstorming. Um, whoever starts that brainstorming session actually sets the anchor. So if you're the boss or the leader of that team, you should never talk first because you don't want to set the anchor. You want the best ideas to come from your people. Um, the, and, you know, the anchor is used all the time in the consumer world. Think about when you go to Amazon and you see it's a, an item is $19.99, but then that's crossed out and now it's $17.99. Mm -hmm. The anchor is 19 Right, so you think it you're getting a bargain. Compared to the anchor... You're right. getting a bargain. Right. Getting a deal. Interesting. Absolutely. So that I think the uh, the takeaway for me is on the the brainstorming is uh, if you're trying to solicit ideas from the rest of your team and you're the team leader, then don't throw your ideas out first. Let try to get the someone else in the in the group to begin the process. Very interesting. One other thing about just that is not on the sketch notes, but one other thing about that is groupthink. Groupthink is one of the most common crippling factors to team innovation and creativity. And uh, the, if you think about your team and you think, are we a nod and smile culture? And nod and smile cultures, while everybody's getting along, you're probably losing out on a whole bunch of great ideas because no one wants to push back on ideas or offer something that's completely out of the box. It's so much easier, like, because we're all so polite. Mm. So we're just going to go with whatever is thrown out first. And we're going to, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's, let's go that route. And so nod and smile cultures can actually be terrible for innovation. And groupthink is one of those uh, one of those concepts that you really have to be on the lookout for. You have to be aware of it and looking for it because it's really easy because people want to get along. They right. Be nice. Right. Well, that goes right? into the same uh, thought process is uh, I've always been someone and you, you hear this often. You don't want to be surrounded. You don't want to surround your your yourself with yes men, people that always agree with you. So you want to. You want to surround yourself with people that are going to challenge the ideas or challenge the questions and the answers so that you do get the best solution. Because if you're just always, and it goes, it's the same as groupthink, if you're always nodding your head yes and you're agreeing with what is is the easy answer or what the majority of the other people, then you don't get those, maybe you're not challenging yourself to get the best solution. Absolutely. One way around that is to uh, kind of make a standing rule that before we leave this table, we're going to experience pushback. Somebody needs to push back on these ideas. 
And if you make that an expectation, then the person who's pushing back is just following the rules. Maybe that's They're an anchor that you set. Contrarian. Yeah, maybe that's an anchor that you set is we're going to have pushback. Absolutely. Interesting. The um, Let's look at the brain is driven by feelings, not facts. I love that because it's uh, I've, I've uh, quoted... Uh, a friend of mine that I that I do some work with, and we're going to make decisions based on data, not drama. So it's almost the same thing. We're, the brain has, a, I guess, it's inclined to make decisions based on feelings rather than facts. Absolutely. You know, we like to think that we're rational thinkers most of the time with a dash of emotion, and the right. truth is. We're emotional beings all of the time, and we're sometimes rational thinkers. Right? True. That is true. The way, the way to understand why this happens is really to understand how the brain develops. So the brain develops from bottom to top and back to front. So the bottom of the brain is the survival brain. It's the brain stem. It's the cerebellum. It's the part of the brain that handles all the autonomic functions that keep us alive. Breathing, heart rate, cerebellum is all about movement. So when you think about fight or flight in survival, uh, the cerebellum is what enables us to flee, mm. to get away from danger. And the brain has a really terrible time of differentiating between physical danger and psychological danger. So even just a threat to your status in the workplace, let's say you toss out an idea and everybody hates it. And, you know, that's a psychological threat. And the brain treats that the same way it does as if a car's coming right at you, right? So, um, so that's the first part of the brain to develop. The second part of the brain to develop is the limbic system, or it's the part right in the center of the brain. You've heard of the amygdala hijack. Right. The amygdala is that little tiny almond-shaped part of the brain that is the emotional sentinel, and it's really there to keep us alive. That's the part of the brain that signals downstairs to the survival brain, hey, there's a problem here, pay attention. There's danger ahead. So that's the second part that develops is the limbic system or the part that manages emotions and feelings. And then the last part to develop is the neocortex or the part on the top all the way to the front right behind your forehead. The part right behind your forehead is the prefrontal cortex. That's the last part of the brain to develop. That's also the part of the brain that is responsible for impulse control, uh, weighing risk and reward. The rational thought process that takes place. That's right. All that higher level thinking happens right here. And that isn't done cooking until we're about 25. Mm -hmm. So if you're wondering why our teenagers make so many stupid mistakes, it's really not their fault. Their prefrontal cortex is, just isn't done cooking. But that neural development, survival, thinking, sorry, survival, feeling, then thinking, our neural priorities follow neural development. So our first priority, the brain's first job is to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. The second job is to feel. And the third job is to think. So, you know, when you hear we are, 
we are all about feelings and emotions and much less about facts. I mean, think about what's going on in our country right now with political stuff and, you know, all the values driven conversations that are creating all kinds of chaos across our country. It is not about facts. There are people are not arguing about facts. They're arguing about emotion. Right. Yeah. So true. That is uh, that really when, when you hear the why and the, the actual science behind it, it, it really clears a lot of things up. Right. Right. Absolutely. Now, that is also when as you were as you were describing that, it also made me made me realize that to be an effective marketing professional, you almost have to be a neuroscientist also. Sure does give you an advantage, doesn't it? It certainly does. If you understand how the brain works, then you can understand what drives consumer decisions. And like at FRLA, I mean, that session was all about why do your guests come in and have a great experience or a terrible experience? We all, we all, we want all of our guests to have a great experience, but there are lots of things that are going on that they're not even aware of. And if you know what those things are, then you're in control of them a lot better. Right. Right. So very interesting. The uh, I want to throw a curveball out at you, and uh, I know you can tie this in, but on the economics, one of the economic foundations or principles is incentives matter. So how do what's the what's the brain hack behind incentives and people? Uh, making decisions based on incentives that are in place. Uh, incentives in terms of uh, just how, like, like for if you look in the if we stick to the restaurant industry, if you look at the incentives of tipping. So the wait staff they're incentivized to provide better service because they can get a bigger tip. Or if they sell Absolutely. more food, they may get a bigger tip or may get a bigger uh, paycheck. So what's the what's the brain hack behind that? Is it is there one? Of course. I mean, any, if you, we're, we're very selfish. We want, we want what we want, but we're also, we also have a very deeply rooted need for fairness. And so when you think about yourself as a customer in a restaurant, and if, it, if a server is not taking good care of you, what do you want to do? You want to show them. Right. That's right. Show it to them. That's how you can express it to them. That's right. But likewise, if you get great service and if that, and if that server does a a great job for you, then you're also going to, you have a greater impetus to show them in, in your tip in that way too. And from a server's perspective, there are lots of different ways that servers can actually use neuroscience to get better tips from their customers. One of them is David Rock did a whole lot of research on what he calls the scarf model. And, and uh, he, he talks about what is it that makes us feel like we're important, like we matter in that, whatever that exchange is, if it's a, if it's a consumer exchange. And one of those things is personalization. Like we like to hear our name. And if you call me, hey, lady, I, that's not as personal as right. you, Melissa. Right? When we hear our name, there's, there's all kinds of science between what happens in the brain when we hear our own name. Um, we actually create 
a very personal human to human connection and, and humans are wired to connect with other people. So when a server goes to a table and says, hi, I'm Melissa and I'll be your server tonight. If they, next thing they say is, and what's your name? And then throughout the meal, if the server uses the guest's first name in that, in that guest experience, that guest is gonna feel closer, more connected. It's a personal connection with that server. Like they're not friends, they're not you know gonna stay in touch afterwards, but there's something in the brain that says, I really trust this person because I'm, it, we're friends. There's, there's my name, friend, not foe. Right. You know, if you, go, if you go back to the evolutionary brain, our brain back in caveman days, the first job when we saw somebody was friend or foe. Survival. And the, that, that, the best way to create a personal connection is to call, use someone's name, call them by their name. So that's got to lead to, if they feel that connection, more likely that they're going to get a very good tip. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've just you've just linked in neuroscience with the marketing position, the marketing professional, as well as the wait staff. I love it. There's there's a place for neuroscience in almost every profession. So let's jump to another one that you have on here: pleasure quirks. Oh, pleasure quirks. They're fun. So you know we talk a lot about why we like what we like and there's and we don't a lot of our what brings us pleasure and joy we don't even know why we don't know why we like it we just know that we do but there are three things to remember when it comes to pleasure and the first one is the chase we really like to chase pleasure but at the biological level of the brain pleasure climbs and peaks at the moment just before you get that thing hmm. and then it starts to decrease so think about you know in the sketch notes i have a picture of a piece of chocolate cake mm-hmm. and if you're a chocolate fanatic and you, there's that cake sitting there and you're thinking about that cake and then until you put your fork in that cake and take the very first bite the pleasure peaks in your brain and then as soon as you get it, it kind of dissipates. So it's at the neuro- highest. It's at the highest before you ever put the cake in your mouth. Before you ever get it. Wow. From a neuroscience perspective, we get more pleasure thinking about the thing we want than getting the thing we want. You know that sounds really counterintuitive. Why does the brain reward you for wanting something and then take that reward away as soon as you get it? Remember, the brain's primary job is survival. Hmm. So it experiences less pleasure the moment satisfaction is reached. Why? Because we've evolved to always want more. It's like Hmm. a kid who begs his parents for months for that new bicycle. And as soon as he gets the new bicycle, it's just it's a little less exciting interesting that that makes so much sense though if you think about it in in things that that you've that you've worked for that you've that you've tried to achieve or that you just have an emotional attachment to that you want that like the piece of cake then then you're exactly right it's uh once you start eating it the that pleasure goes way down yeah and if you think about 
for those of you or your your viewers who have who, who are goal setters, like I'm a goal setter, and I think I'm going to set this goal, and when I reach this goal, here's my prize, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking about that prize is so much sweeter than when I finally get the prize. Right. So true. Yeah. You don't set on those uh, those wins for very long because they're just not satisfied. They're not satisfying anymore. Yep. Interesting. The second one is choice. So that's the chase. The choice is this misconception that more choice leads to more pleasure. Not true. Too many options can actually lead to inaction. This is known as the paradox of choice, and it was actually made famous by a jam study back in 2000. And one day, shoppers at this upscale food market saw a display of 24 varieties of gourmet jams. In another store, same type of store, same uh, general traffic patterns, same general demographics, um, they had a display of only six varieties of gourmet jams. You'd think that the 24 jam display would sell far more jam, but that's not what happened. The people who saw the 24 variety displays were significantly more likely to stop at the the display and check it out, but significantly less likely to buy, like Hmm. 33% less likely to buy. Wow, that's a significant difference. I mean, we just, the brain gets tired and there's another thing called decision fatigue. And um, they, they say, like, when you're buying a car, there should only be... That's why they bundle things in car packages. Who knew, right? Yeah. But you've, got this, you've got the bundle package of, I don't know, the wheels, the whatever, the whatever, the whatever. That's because if you went through every single one of those decisions one by one, you would want to stop. Right. And do nothing. I don't want any more options. Yeah, you want the it. sports package or the luxury package or the base model. So yeah, interesting. So again, neuroscience plays into that marketing or that retail operation. So real quickly, and we're going to have to wrap up, but chance, give us the last one of the pleasure quirks. Uh, Chance very quickly is as much as we like what is familiar to us, the brain lights up. The nucleus accumbens or the pleasure center of the brain lights up when we experience something good randomly. Now, the flip side is when we experience something bad randomly, like we're just blindsided, that negative emotion is as intense on the negative scale as the positive is intense on the positive scale. Interesting. Great nuggets, great neuroscience information that you've given us today. Dr. Melissa Hughes, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I always look forward to the next one that you're going to be on our podcast, too. So... Tell us real quick your website so people can check you out there. So my website is melissahughes.rocks, R-O-C-K-S. And I also just want to give a shout. I am the Florida Program Director for Give Something Back. And we are a nonprofit. And we help we offer scholarship and mentorship to students as early as 8th and ninth grade. And we help them set a path to success through post-secondary programming. So if you want to learn more about GiveBack, it's giveback.ngo. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Melissa Hughes. I will see you next time. You've been watching Answers That Count podcast. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove. 
Have a great day. Have a blessed week. Peace.